Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to the Mary Rose for another instalment of Down the Pub, where today it's our version of the Darwin Awards. Well, we said history's most epic death. Um, I'm judging Alina because she's putting chocolate in her shopping trolley. We'll explain this in a second. Uh, but it's turned out people have mostly taken that to mean most idiotic death in history. Uh, Alina is with us tonight, but she's currently giving us a, a view of her going around some supermarket in Poland. Um, she just showed us the vodka roll, which was amusing because it was basically half the supermarket. This place goes on forever. Look at it. What kit? What did you say it looked like? It looked like the, be the beginning of Nightmare. Do you remember that? <laughs> yeah, take two steps left. <laughs> One step forward. No, she won't get it. Uh, okay, <clears throat> we have Holmes with us, judging again tonight. Holmes, how you doing? Not too bad, not too bad. That you cracking over the second beer? I'm, I'm, I'm manfully sipping the first one now, as I was, I was sort of shamed into holding back a little bit. Do you know what? I've, I've fucking had enough this week. I'm so sick of coronavirus. I'm sick of this shit. Does anyone want to, when I go around and introduce you, if anyone wants to have a moan about anything, yes, we all know it could be worse and we're very lucky not to be ill and some people have got it worse than us, but still, this is shit and I've had enough now. Holmes, how are you doing? I'm okay. I'm okay. I mean, when I sat down as well, I noticed there was a massive furball just where I was about to put my feet and I, it was, it was, it was more of a cow pack with a massive dog shit on the top as opposed to a furball, but, um, <laughs> That's why I started logging in, to be honest. Excellent. Uh, your fellow judge for tonight, because Johnny has to adult again, is Emma. Hey, Emma. Hi. I'm How are you doing? I'm excited to be judging this time, having been judged so much. I know. <laughs> I, was, I was like, Emma, do you want to do it or do you want to be a judge? And she was like, I want to be a judge. <laughs> I was. I was straight back. Like, yes, allow me to judge people. I wish to hold people's fates in my hands. Does Emma. that mean we're going to get a Roman one, even if, even if one's not nominated tonight? <laughs> I'm just going to yeah. nominate my own at the end, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Emma, you've, just, you've lost a shit ton of weight. You've been really ill, haven't you? I have been ill. You um, look really, you're like, you know when someone's been sick for a couple of weeks and they, they slim down really rapidly? <laughs> That's not too bad because I was eating nothing but biscuits for about 12 weeks. So. Yeah, that's quite cool in that you basically stuffed your face and raided the fridge. Like, what do they say on the uh, compare the market thing? Naughty. That stupid yeah. Russian accent. Uh, and then you've lost it all in a big um, attack of, what is it, bronchitis? I've got, uh, well, we don't know. I had a chest x-ray the other day, so I'll find out tomorrow. Oh, uh, they told no. me that I have long lungs. So Is that good or bad? I don't know. I couldn't decide if I was being long shamed or long complimented. <laughs> it sounds sexy. It does sound sexy. <laughs> Lena, show off and do your shopping. Uh, so, you haven't gone back to work then, because Waterstones is open again now, isn't Waterstones it? Waterstones is open again, but I'm not there, so um, oh. I assume it's surviving without me. 
Kit's back. Kit made his debut last week and was hilarious. We had to get him straight back again. Kit, how you doing? I'm doing all right. Going a little bit crazy. First two and a half months of the year, I was traveling around South America. The next two and a half months, I've been stuck in Southampton. Yeah. So. You just told us, what are you missing out on because of coronavirus? Because I'd have the right fucking hump. Um, so I'm supposed to be writing a book about science that goes into uh, Formula One. And I was supposed to be traveling the world, visiting Monaco and Formula One teams. And obviously the whole sport shut down. So I haven't been able to do anything. So Southampton instead. Southampton. Yeah. Poor you. <laughs> uh, speaking of Southampton, Zach White is with us tonight. Zach, before we do anything else, everybody come off mute a second. And give Zach a okay. round of applause for his Waterloo shit today, because that's been epic. It's been going for like a week and a half now. He has done so much work. Even my cat just woke up like, oh, why are we all clapping? Why are we all clapping? <laughs> um, he's done so much work to commemorate today's anniversary, uh, culminating in an utter shit frenzy of tweeting today. He's not had nearly enough credit for it. He's going slightly fucking batshit crazy now. So he's here to have a laugh, basically. Zach, you all right? I'm good, thanks, Alex. Have you calmed down a bit now? A little bit. Are you ready to bit. just talk utter nonsense? That's that's what we do as historians, isn't it? Just talk. Yeah, crap yeah, we just and make it all up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Although, do you know what, Zach? We've not had any politics come out of the woodwork after we posted that panel discussion about history. What's going wrong? We did have quiet? one loon come out on the Churchill one and say, "Well, you didn't explain anything, and you just said he was." Uh, all right at heart or he had a good heart i'm like no that's really not all peter caddy Adam says in a 45 to 50 minute program that was one line that you thought sounded snippy to knock him down with he actually spent nigh on an hour talking about the history behind it i think you're just being a little bit ornery aren't you but no none for us we also have andrew dorman with us and are you all right how's dublin ah the usual it's grand you know uh so your phd's going all right um, yeah, other than usual. that You've yeah, seen you passed on to next year, haven't you? But have you had enough as well? Yeah, no, I'm officially halfway through now, past my upgrade, which is great. Um, but yeah, I'm sick of this shit. Like, I'm missing out on loads of gigs. Edinburgh Fringe Festival obviously isn't happening this year, which is shite. And uh, obviously conferences are dead too, so a lot of things going on in the world. Bollocks. Okay. Hello. Uh, you sound like I feel. How you doing? Yeah, just kind of hearing that reminded me I've missed a load of stuff as well, cool stuff. Like I was supposed to go off to Salonica with my brother and my old man and, um, you know, we're supposed to have rugby tour as well. Missed out on that. Um, yeah, PhD's going all right. I, I smashed Q for digitised your know, war diaries Ooh, before Me too. Lockdown. How many people's emails have you utilised? <laughs> 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 Hang on. Right, just hold up your fingers. And I'll tell you whether mine's more or less. To, to be honest, only that Oh, many. really? Yeah. No, I did, to... I did loads before we, before we got locked down. So ah, um, I've, okay. got, I've got two external hard disks full of war diaries, basically. Um, so... so for those that don't know, you can now uh, download things for free from the National Archives at Kew. And, and the fair usage, policy, fair usage policy is 50 per month for your email. Um, and I've just managed to convince a lot of people I know that they really need a load of Mesopotamian medical war diaries. <laughs> Quite a few of them. But I figure that none of, the, none of those individuals has gone over the 50. They're all real people. They're all real email addresses. Um, and it's just become a group project. Uh, John. Coming at you from the autonomous police-free zone of Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah, I mean, how uh, goes that? 
Yeah, I'd you know, sleep yesterday. What's going on today? Well, well, the thing is, because of uh, COVID quarantine, I can't get out and do all the looting I'd like. And uh, unfortunately, my office gave everybody tomorrow off to reflect on our role in social justice. But because I'm quarantined, I can't go into the office so that I can take the day out of the office. So I'm really kind of pissed about it. Added to that as well, you have been nose raped this week, haven't you? But you are uh, negative. Twice. You don't have it twice. Yeah, yeah. I got uh, two. Basically, everybody in our house except our dogs is negative. But, uh, you know, policy is what it is. So I'll be in exile on, uh, uh, on uh, Fern Cove Drive for a little bit more. Oh, dear. Jamie's not main, in... Not exile on Main Street. <laughs> Jamie's in Maryland, our pirate historian. Hey, Jamie. Hello. The police turning up for work there? Uh, yeah, although Baltimore just announced that they're going to reduce the police budget. So we'll see how that goes for <laughs> Perfect Baltimore. Perfect timing. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're supposed to reinvest that money into the community. So fingers crossed that the money goes where it says it's going to go. Yeah, that and is it not just going to go to spending on things that they could have saved from being ruined had they been pleased to stop people being naughty? Perhaps, although I don't know that the police force in Baltimore has been that effective anyways. So I don't know if we're really going to miss them. You saw the wire, they were good on that. What's that? The wire? They were good on the wire. <laughs> that ended it's a very while. realistic. Clive. Ended a while. Clive, you are here. You are logged in now. Clive has had a great day. Anyone listening to Clive hasn't. Clive, what have you been doing? I've been speaking to about 100 Americans on a webinar about insurance-linked securities. And I can tell you, they were all very excited. Mm. I hate that word, webinar. It's such a made-up word. I logged in to do that thing for Dan Hill the other day, and there was this really artificial American voice, and she wouldn't stop saying it. She'd be like, please wait for the webinar. You are going to be connected to the webinar. And she just kept saying it over and over again, and I wanted to punch my laptop. James, you're here as well. Yeah, even I'm getting fed of coronavirus by now. Um had a scare the other day possible family member with it and hopefully won't need to go through the tests again but uh, no. on the upside at least an online project i'm a part of is starting finally saturday after a year and a half of waiting because of all uni strikes and then coronavirus so hopefully that goes well but uh, let's start with let's start with james because james is going to sing for us today as well yeah, hopefully a lot of you know this jingle, but stupid deaths, stupid deaths, they're funny because they're true. Woohoo! Stupid deaths, stupid deaths, hope next time it's not you. <laughs> <laughs> this is horrible histories, right? Yeah, it's horrible histories. As uh, soon as you said epic deaths, I was like, I've been watching the whole compilations just to see how many there are, and it's just like. Yeah, so this week I'm going back to French bashing. I'm sorry, France, <laughs> but it's called for. You're not sorry so, at all, and none of us are, to be fair. Yeah, so I'm going with Madame Blanchard. Um, she was the first female balloonist to pilot her own balloon. She was the husband of Jean-Pierre Blanchard. Um yeah, she was quite a famous balloonist, and her character inspired Felicity Jones which will make her death even more amusing for those that don't like Felicity Jones, the actor. But um, she used to fly a hydrogen-filled balloon because it was smaller, it was easier to get up, easier to make it rise. She was also small but light. She became a favourite of Napoleon. 
She replaced uh, Gurnery, who couldn't get his up at all. So uh, there's a few <laughs> jokes in there that he couldn't get it up. <laughs> Zach <laughs> went first. Zach went to the smutty English humour place first. Uh, well, yeah, because this was at the time of balloon rights where people used to effectively kill balloonists if they couldn't get it up. So, uh, yeah, she, um, yeah, she liked to do parachute experiments, throwing dogs with parachutes out of their aircraft and then pyrotechnics as well which will be important for later. Um, she even drew up an air invasion of England during the war, but then realised the winds wouldn't work. She almost crashed. Um, she almost drowned in a marsh. She almost died flying really high. But her death, she was doing demonstrations in Tivoli Gardens. She decided to take loads and loads of fireworks up with her strapped even more than usual even though people kept warning her against it so she took loads and loads of them up including bengal fire which she lit around her balloon and this is a hydrogen filled balloon not a hot air balloon so you can sort of see where this is going she struggled to get it up she released ballast she hit some trees on the way up she didn't realize the fireworks then were knocked all towards the balloon yet she still lit the fuse. So, obviously, the fireworks went straight into the balloon, hydrogen, flames, all they could, the crowd could see below was this fireball. They thought it was part of the performance. She went flying away from the gardens because the wind was so strong. She was trying to control it. She was also dressed all in white with big ostrich feathers and a big white flag. So basically, French national dress. Um, so she's struggling to control it. She could have survived, but she hit a house. <laughs> so this big fireball comes flaming down, hits a house. She might have survived if her chair had been secure, but instead she goes flying into the street and more or less dies instantly. The Tifoli Gardens then raise money for her children then they find out she doesn't have children so instead the money went to her headstone where they actually put her balloon with her falling out of it in flames on her headstone so. <laughs> only in france i feel could all of these yeah. things have come together <laughs> to make one shit fest yeah. holmes any questions uh, one, I mean, it's a fairly spectacular death. And I thought she'd have died, I, from James's description, I thought she'd have died much earlier than she did, actually. By the time he got to the seat bit, I thought she's gone two stages way back, way back. But um, I was slightly intrigued to, he mentioned quite early on that people used to kill balloonists. I just wondered why that was. Yeah, and you made that comment, like he threw it away as if everybody yeah. knows that all balloonists got murdered. <laughs> yeah, it's because for some reason, if they fail to get the balloons up in the air or put on a performance that people usually paid for, people used to get rather pissed off about it. I mean, Napoleon fired his one guy because he, he couldn't get the balloon up, then he could get it up, but he couldn't control it. So basically like a lot of men then. And it ended up flying into Rome, which was ironic and became a mockery for Napoleon. But yeah, she could get it up when most couldn't. So <laughs> make well, I suppose, what you will. But I mean, killing's a bit extreme, but I suppose there's no trip advisor, no social media. People have to vent their feelings somehow. 
Yeah. This is true. I want to know at what point in all of that did she think, shit, this is bad, (laughs) presumably. But obviously not until after she thought she'd light the fireworks anyway. Emma, any questions? Yeah, that was my... She lit the fireworks herself. (laughs) This wasn't a terrible accident whereby somebody else lit some fireworks unaware she was had a hydrogen balloon she got in a hydrogen balloon that she had inflated herself and then lit some fireworks <laughs> yes <laughs> i mean supposedly she'd done it before successfully and she used to drop pyrotechnics by parachute but it's yeah it seems that these fireworks ended up pointing the wrong way and she still <laughs> lit them that just boggles my mind <laughs> I mean, how old is she? Is there like any chance that you would think like there should be some level of maturity going I on? I think she was only in her thirties when she died, but still old enough to know better. Yes, still you, old you enough, especially as her husband died ballooning. So you'd think she'd learn, but wow. yeah. Emma, anything else? That was it. I just yeah, just boggles mind. <laughs> 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 Oh, what better way to start than with some French lunacy. Uh, let's go next. Oh, so she was a champion a couple of weeks ago with our most incompetent leader. Let's go to Jamie next. Okay, so hes it's not a ridiculous pirate death, unfortunately, but it is the most iconic pirate death, and that mm-hmm. is the death of Blackbeard. So cool. I'll try to keep this as short and sweet as possible. Uh, most of my information comes from Eric J. Dolan's Black Flags Blue Waters. So just a heads up so I don't get in trouble here. Um, so the most iconic scene in Blackbeard's storied life is his death. Uh, he met his gruesome end at the hands of British Naval Lieutenant Robert Maynard, who was sent by Virginia Governor Alexander Spotswood to track him down. So Maynard was tipped off that Blackbeard and his men might be moored off of North Carolina's Ocracoke Island. So they departed Williamsburg in November of 1718 and sailed down the James River. Uh, Unfortunately for Maynard, he was not able to take a British man of war because it would not have been able to navigate the shallow waters. So he was stuck on two different small sloops. He had the Ranger at his side and the slightly larger, the Jane, which is uh, what he was on. Uh, So these sloops could easily navigate the shallow and twisting channels around the Ocracoke, but they had no cannons. So imagine being on a boat when you're going to go up against Blackbeard and you have no cannons. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So already we're off to a great start. By the afternoon of November 21st, Maynard's sloop had reached the southern tip of Ocracoke and Blackbeard, however, unaware of the force amassing nearby, along with about 20 of his men on board the sloop Adventure, spent that evening drinking and carousing with a local trader. Uh, So they're all getting hammered, not realizing that Maynard and his men are nearby. Um, When the Jane pulled to within about half a pistol shot of the Adventure, there was a brief conversation between Maynard and Blackbeard. According to a secondhand account in the Boston newsletter, the exchange was as follows. So Teach called to Lieutenant Maynard and told him he was for King George, desiring him to hoist out his boat and come aboard. Maynard replied that he designed to come aboard with his sloop as soon as he could, but Teach, understanding his design, told him that if he would let him alone, he would not meddle with him. Maynard answered that it was him he wanted and that he would have him dead or alive, else it would cost him his life. Whereupon Teach called for a glass of wine and swore damnation to himself if either took or gave quarter. 
Uh, Maynard's own account of the conversation is similar but briefer and makes one wish that the naval officer had not been so laconic. Uh, as soon as the talking was over, Blackbeard took full advantage of his superior firepower and unleashed a booming broadside of partridge and swan shot that killed the commander of the ranger and severely wounded five of his men, including the second and third in command. Shorn of its officers, the ranger fell behind and was not a factor until the very end of the battle. The broadside also wounded many men on the Jane, but they luckily continued to fight. Uh, in an amazing display of markmanship, uh, or more likely, a very lucky shot, they severed the adventurer's uh, jib halyard, the line holding the jib, uh, which caused the sail to collapse and slowed the vessel down. Uh, not wanting to expose any more of his men to blasts from Blackbeard's cannons, Maynard ordered all of them below decks while he went into the cabin at the stern of the ship. Uh, Maynard was not only retreating to get out of harm's way, but he was also setting up a trap to uh, deceive Blackbeard. Before going to the cabin, Maynard ordered the pilot and a midshipman to stay on deck and alert him as to what Blackbeard was doing. If it worked out, the pirates would come to Maynard. So... Uh, having a lack of cannons would not be to his disadvantage. Seeing that the Jane's decks were clear, Blackbeard thought that his cannons had done their deadly work and the battle was all but won. To deliver the coup de grace, Blackbeard brought the adventure alongside the Jane and led his men over the rails with a rope in his hand to lash the vessels together. As soon as Blackbeard was aboard, the pilot signaled Maynard, who along with 12 of his men rushed to the main deck, catching the pirates off guard. During the six-minute melee that ensued, the combatants slashed, thrust, and shot at one another at close range. Their grunts, screams, and groans intermingled with the sounds of clashing steel and exploding gunpowder. When the smoke finally cleared, the great Blackbeard lay dead, and the rest of his men who had followed him onto the Jane were either killed or severely wounded. Um, now, as far as the death of Blackbeard, it's one of the most, uh, most famous events in the history of piracy, uh, but how he was killed exactly is a matter of debate. Um, the Boston Newsletter account says that Maynard and Teach themselves begun the fight with their swords, Maynard making a thrust, the point of his sword against Teach's cartridge box, and bended it to the hilt. Teach broke the guard of it and wounded Maynard's fingers, but did not disable him, whereupon he jumped back and threw away his sword and fired his pistol, which wounded Teach. Demelt struck in between them with his sword and cut Teach's face. One of Maynard's men engaged Teach with his broadsword, who also gave Teach a cut on the neck. Teach saying, well done, lad. Uh, if it not be well done, I'll do it better, said the man who cut Blackbeard. Uh, many subsequent authors embellished this description. Um, some say that he fell with five shot in him and 20 dismal cuts in several parts of his body. Maynard added, I have cut Blackbeard's head off, which I have put on my bowsprit in order to carry it to Virginia. Blackbeard's headless body was pitched into the murky water of Pamlico Sound, where according to legend, it took a few laps around the Jane before sinking out of sight. On January 1719, under sunny skies, the victorious Maynard sailed up the James River aboard the adventure, with Blackbeard's decomposing and no doubt pungent head hung from the bowsprit. As Maynard passed by the British warships Lime and the Pearl, he saluted the ships with nine cannon blasts, uh, and as a warning to those who might consider piracy as a profitable career, Virginia Governor Alexander Spotswood had Blackbeard's head mounted on a pike along the edge of the river, a location later christened Blackbeard's Point. Uh, according to some later accounts, Blackbeard's head was eventually taken down, and the top half of his skull was turned into a punch bowl, 
that was enlarged with silver or silver plated and used for a time at one of the town taverns in Williamsburg. But the skull has since been lost. And that's the death of Blackbeard. That is iconic, isn't it? Um, I, <laughs> why would you stick it on the bowsprit for safekeeping? That's possibly like the riskiest place to put it on a pitching ship, right? <laughs> you You're just think. showing off, aren't you? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Emma, any questions? Um, <laughs> is this like a particularly common way for a pirate captain to die? Or like, do they often die off screen? Um, typically if they die, it's usually because they have been tried and executed for piracy. They very rarely died in battle just because pirates typically tried to avoid battle as much as possible, since typically pirates were on much smaller ships than the vessels they engaged with. So this was sort of a, an unusual situation in which, um... Blackbeard had the upper hand with the ship because Maynard couldn't use a man of war. And he did not seem bothered by it, but he was like, mm, okay, come on then. <laughs> yeah, let's go. <laughs> All right, I suppose if I must. I love the idea <laughs> of him taking four laps of the boat without a head before he finally <laughs> thinks, All right, enough now. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, you mentioned at the start that he'd been drinking by the time the British turned up. Was that right? Yes. So what, do you think he would, have, he would have pursued the same course of action if he'd not been drinking? We drink oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think he was, he was in such a position by this point in time that he didn't have a lot to lose. And so I think he would have taken the same course of action. But I think the drinking made him a little bit bolder in terms of um, not bringing as many men as he could have. Okay, and then it's a shame. I don't know what it is about what people, people's body parts, historical body parts, when they get to America, but it's a shame that they lost their head because they could have put it with um, Napoleon's foreskin that we learned about a few weeks ago because that would have made a nice shot for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. Let's do John because we've heard this one a bit before, um, but I want to hear it. I want to hear John's version of it. All right. Uh, a few weeks ago, I uh, nominated uh, a Russian Tsar as one of the least competent uh, leaders in history. And uh, for this week, I thought I'd go back to old Russia again. Now, we're talking about epic deaths, and I you know, considered before centering on Russia, you know, other types of deaths, going in a different direction. The death of the Bismarck, the death of Pompeii, uh, the death of David Carradine. The death, of, the death of Liverpool's hopes of uh, winning the table this year. <laughs> but I settled on a criteria of the Friday the 13th award for uh, hardest guy to kill. And this one is, of course, the uh, mad monk himself, Grigory Rasputin uh, of Siberia from the early 20th century. Now, uh, Rasputin turns up uh, first in St. Petersburg about 1904, but he'd had a career as a... Uh, as a holy man in training uh, throughout Siberia. He'd been educated in, in religion. It was rumored that he uh, had a lot of, of, of affairs with his uh, acolytes and followers, but basically he made a name for himself way out in Siberia. By uh, 1906, he turns up in St. Petersburg. He meets the czar, and uh, the, the royal family felt that 
uh, Rasputin had some mystical healing powers. He kind of looked the part, you know, sort of straggly hair, straggly beard, kind of like, uh, you know, a 1960s hippie uh, without a shower. So uh, the reason his faith healing properties were important to the royal family was because the Tsarevich, the, their son, the heir to the throne, Alexei, uh, was a hemophiliac. And uh, that meant not only did he have trouble stopping bleeding if he got a cut, but if he just did ordinary things that kids did, like play, uh, you know, bounce around, whatever, a bruise would turn into a very large and painful hematoma. In 1907, he had a, a very bad bout of internal bleeding. Uh, the uh, Tsar asked Rasputin to pray for her, his son, uh, the Tsarina, Alexandra, uh, his wife also asked uh, for that, that uh, help, and the guy did it, and in a, what is apparent, an apparent coincidence, the internal bleeding stopped the next day. Uh, five years later, 1912, another episode by the Tsarevich. He gets an injury, I think bouncing on a carriage ride. His leg swells up. He's in a lot of pain. Doctors think he might be dead. Rasputin's off in Siberia now. But the royal family sends him a telegram and says, hey, can you do anything about our, our kid? He's in trouble again. Rasputin wires back, hey, he's going to be fine. Just tell the doctors not to mess with him. And he's fine. So the, uh, the, the Tsarina, the Empress Alexandra, think, pronounces this a miracle. Rasputin gets, becomes really trusted by the royal family. He's appointed the lamplighter, which is the guy who keeps candles lit in front of icons. Um, and he gets, he basically gets this following at court and he's like a rooster in a hen house at this point. He takes bribes. He has sex with, uh, the people who are followers. He basically does whatever he wants to do. Uh, he's kind of like Jeremy Irons, uh, playing Pope Alexander in the Borgias, basically has license to do whatever he wants. And that makes the nobility unhappy. All right. So speed up a couple of years. It's World War I. The war is starting to go south for the Russians. And a lot of people began blaming Rasputin's influence on the Tsar. So by December of 1916, the very end of the month, a few conspirators, Prince uh, Felix Yusupov and Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlovich, and a few other guys decide they need to get rid of this creep. So they invite him over to Yusupov's palace for tea and cakes. Yusupov does. Nobody else is around. And what Rasputin doesn't know is that uh, they've dumped a ton of cyanide into the, uh, into the cakes. So he starts wolfing down the cakes and nothing happens. Then he says, hey, uh, you got any wine? So they give him some Madeira wine. That's been spiked with cyanide also. Chug, chug. He goes through, you know, two, three, four glasses of wine. Nothing happens. There are, uh, Yusupov sitting around waiting for this guy to keel over, but it's like something out of a Monty Python sketch. Nothing's happening. So finally, Yusupov gets tired of waiting for this guy to die, goes out to another room, comes back with a revolver, sticks it in Rasputin's chest, pulls the trigger, shoots him dead there. So they think. So Rasputin's lying dead on the floor. Uh, Yusupov goes to get his friends. Hey, now we got the dead body. Let's get rid of it. All of a sudden, Rasputin jumps back up and starts beating the crap out of Yusupov. Now, the other friends, you know, Yusupov manages to get away. Rasputin's chasing the guy who's poisoned him and shot him. And the other conspirators jump on Rasputin. They start beating him. They cut him with knives. And uh, finally, they, uh, they shoot him, drag him down to the Little Neva River, 
and uh, they toss him in. And uh, the rumor went around afterward that uh, there was water in his lungs indicating that he had actually died of drowning. Uh, there was an autopsy done. Sounds like that last part, maybe not. But I think that Rasputin wins the Jason from Friday the 13th award for being hardest to kill. And that's why I think uh, he outranks Bismarck, David Carradine, and, and Liverpool as epic death. Absolutely. Um, it's quite funny, isn't it? Uh, which, and, and I said this the other week, didn't I? That the guy behind this, the only person richer than Felix Yusupov in the entire Russian Empire is the Tsar. So why not just pay a fucking hitman? Exactly. Would have been worked out, although this is the kind of thing that, uh, yeah, I think, I think probably like Jean Reno or one of those assassins, you need a professional working here. The Definitely. amateurs weren't going to do it with a guy like him. Nope. Holmes. Sorry, I was mid-drink then. Um, do, do we think he actually had? It was it just sort of fluke, and the fact that the Tsar and the Tsarina were so desperate that they believed that he worked these miracles, when in fact there were no miracles. You, you know, nobody came up with a satisfying explanation. Obviously, uh, there's the power of suggestion. Uh, sometimes that that helps patients along, um, gives them hope, and they fight harder. Uh, Rasputin did, I think, tell the uh, Tsarina, like, don't tell the tell the doctors not to mess with them so much. And you know, when you get when you're a hemophiliac and you're free bleeding, you got doctors turning you over to look at you to see if you're still bleeding. Um, that's that's really not the way to stop that. So, I think it's probably coincidence here. At, There's at, at least two major incidences where he's. It's really fluky. It's really lucky. I can't remember which ones they are. There's typically. a theory that um, just after aspirin was kind of popularized, and aspirin obviously is really bad for hemophiliacs because uh-huh. um, it thins the blood. And there's a theory that doctors were giving him aspirin, and so when um, Rasputin came along and said, "Don't give him anything," um, it because aspirin was making him so much worse, just the fact that he got a bit better from not having aspirin um, mm. made it look like he was working miracles. Because, uh, <laughs> yeah, it was, it was heartbreaking for the, uh, the royal family. And of course, he's the heir to the throne. So they were looking for any card they could play because they knew his hemophilia was a chronic condition. I think emotionally as well, the, uh, the empress, she was susceptible to his nonsense mm-hmm. as well for many reasons. Um, Holmes, any other questions? Well, also, I mean, we know from the work of Boney M that he was Russia's greatest love machine, but I thought, <laughs> as a monk, isn't he supposed to be, have a vow of chastity or something like that or be celibate? No. He's a mad monk. He's a mad monk. And he was an orthodox he's... monk. And yeah. orthodox monks, could, I think, could marry. Mm. Yeah, he had, uh, like, I think three children. Uh, he had, obviously, mistresses. But, uh, yeah, but or- orthodox wasn't like the Latin church. And um, he, I mean, he really, he didn't watch. He believed it, like Brad Pitt believed in his own natural body odor um, being sufficient. And I mean, he was grotty and disgusting. But for some reason, these like aristocratic women just throw themselves at him. Um, yeah, yeah, like my teenage son, just without the aristocratic women part. <laughs> 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 Emma, any questions? Uh, so, as far as I'm aware, everything that we quote unquote know about Rasputin's death comes from um Yusupov's own autobiography and his mm-hmm. description of what happened in which he sounds like a massive badass um, yeah. Yeah. fighting the this undead mad monk who <laughs> won't die. 
but, but then uh, I always thought, would he then would have just claimed to have done it the first time, wouldn't he? Well, you see, I don't know, because he does sound very cool by being it's, able to it's more ba- It's more epic. Yeah, yeah it's, it's, it's very like epic. Superman and Lex Luthor or something. He's undermined by the autopsy, which says that he had no poison in his body and he was killed by a shot to the head. But... Um, there is yeah. there is some explanation, isn't there, about um, why he might have had a higher tolerance. Apparently, some people can have a higher tolerance to what I think they were it's given an alcohol him. Alcohol thing. Yeah. So, so because he was so alcoholic. constantly pissed. Yeah. Then it can up your tolerance to cyanide. Oh, your yeah. tolerance to alcohol is affected by cyanide. It's something called your cytochrome P four fifties in your liver. And cytochrome P P four fifty CYP two E one, if you really <laughs> want to know, is the one that governs alcohol. Maybe I'd lay to it. Oh. <laughs> that, that was that was my question, but we didn't. I didn't think we had time. Um, <laughs> so, so the moral is: don't ever try to poison Russians with cyano uh, with cyanosis. Yeah, <laughs> I love it. This is why we keep Kit around because he's the only sciencey brain in this room. The rest of us are all artsy mofo's who just bullshit our way to any given answer. Uh, let's have a quick pause and go and get because I need gin um, and I'm selfish. <laughs> Right, we're back. Most of us are back. While we're waiting for the others, we're just going to do some random mockery of the legal profession because there are so many of you buggers in here tonight. Uh, James, give us your one. Gary Hoy. Basically, he was demonstrating on the twenty-fourth floor of the Toronto Dominion Centre that the window, the building's windows, were unbreakable. He threw himself at the window, which did not break, but popped out of its frame, and he fell to his death. And this was in ninety-three. What a knobber. Um, also, as well, you've mentioned him, Clement Vallandigham, uh, US congressman, Civil War veteran, badass, um, earned his living on the side from court cases, uh, won himself a place in the history books when he accidentally killed himself because he was defending a murderer and he, just, he was demonstrating how this gun could be fired accidentally and therefore it wasn't murder. But no one had told him it was still loaded and it did. He accidentally shot himself with it, uh, which was unfortunate for him, but it did lead to the acquittal of his client. Um, to talk, is there like a, an evil lawyer HQ like the CIA where they have stars on a wall or something, Holmes? <laughs> it's just the law society in Chancery Lane, isn't it? They've probably got something <laughs> like that somewhere. That, that is dedication to your client, though. Yeah. Uh, James, before we start back, tell everyone about this mental poodle and how it kills so many oh. people. <laughs> yeah, this, this was so funny. I researched this the other day. Basically, this poodle named Cachet fell 13 floors in Buenos Aires, Argentina. It fatally hit a 75-year-old woman on the head, killing them both instantly. A 46-year-old that went to go help the woman, hoping she was still alive, ended up being killed by a bus as she crossed the road. <laughs> and then some unknown man that saw both of these had a heart attack, was taken to hospital, but died. Has uh... one poodle ever killed so many people in history? <laughs> yeah, no. any better uh, accounts oh this is why cats are better than dogs although i did know that uh in the background john's dog wandered in a little while ago and looked at him as if to say you're not doing work that's not work and just wandered off again <laughs> <laughs> i think he was trying to say are you going to finish that drink okay <laughs> bless him okay right let's get started with another one of our contenders uh locky you ready yeah i think so um, go on then I had, I had who to, you go for in the end 
Well, um, <laughs> with the 20 minutes notice you had to get ready for this tonight. <laughs> the one that popped into my head with the definitely the stupidest death that I, I know is just too bleak a story and it's too recent and it's a bit too real. And it's a guy that used to play at one of my old rugby clubs, but it involves a grass skirt and fire. And oh yeah, no, it's really, really bad. I'm not going to do that one. No. Um, I think he didn't go to one of Claudia Winkleman's Halloween parties, did he? Oh, no, no. you are so going to hell. It wasn't, you know, the dance of the flaming assholes, which is a which is a rugby club thing as well. It's a, a common. It's involved toilet roll and, and a beer as well, but um, that's less dangerous. <laughs> Zach's um, face is like, what the <laughs> fuck? Um, yeah, maybe a story for later. Anyway, yeah. the, the, the one I'm going to do is is a. Pretty epic death, and um, generally speaking, this is outside my field of history because I mean, I, I there's dinosaurs, and then some other stuff happens, and then you got the French Revolution, and then things start getting interesting as far as I'm concerned. But um, <laughs> yeah, this is Andy's sitting there with one, how I see. <laughs> yeah, and Andy's face as well, as in like, oh, I might have something. and then there were Romans, and then I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Then modern history happens. <laughs> Do you know what? You say that, but we had a prehistorian on for the first time ever yesterday. I'm going to put it out next week. It was amazing. Matt Pope talks about Neanderthals and basically made us realise that all the history we've ever discussed ain't shit on History oh, Hack yeah. because he discussed like the half a million years before <laughs> it and made us feel really inadequate. But go on, Lockie. Well, yeah, I just Andy loves my stuff anyway. I was bigging up Drake last week, and uh, yeah. <laughs> every time I put out one I of those greatest Britain polls and include him, I think because <laughs> I know Andy's going to see it go fuck, fuck Drake. Um, um, yeah, we'll quickly bash through the the, the the sad and grisly death of James Scott, the first Duke of Monmouth, uh, shall we? Brilliant, he's, he's yeah. quite fun. Um, leader of the Monmouth Rebellion because he was a. a, a fighter and not a lover well he, he kind of was a fighter he'd done quite well i think um out in holland uh fighting against the catholics over there so well done him um fighting catholics i think that was his that was his thing because when uh, his father um father charles the second um he was an illegitimate uh, child of charles the second he's the um, oldest illegitimate one isn't he yeah, but I'm I, not quite sure. I, I, Charles II had about 750. He did, but I believe this is the one where if he wasn't going to have an heir, then this guy at least thought he might be able to get in there, even though yeah, it's legitimate. Moderately in with a shout, um, possibly, especially because without a legitimate heir, who was the heir to Charles II's throne? Well, it was his brother, James, and he was out-and-out out Catholic. And uh, this was at a time when we were very hostile to the Roman Catholics, of course, in, in England. So, um, yes, as it happens, that uh, no process of legitimising James Scott took place. Everyone's called Charles or James at this time. Um, yeah, they're not very imaginative. No, it's frustrating as well. Um, so, yes, we've got King James uh, becomes King James um, in... 1685 and illegitimate son of Charles who is also called James James Scott um, thinks no I don't want him to be king I'd rather I was king actually and so he gets a, a couple of thousand farmers down in the west country uh, to agree with him uh, and unfortunately King James sends the grenadier guards down to um, sort them out so <laughs> the Monmouth rebellion is a short-lived thing James legs it before he is caught and there's a big reward put out for him but they do I believe hold his trial in his absence um, and sentence him to death for treason so it's like when they've caught him 
good news. We've, we've saved some time uh, here, and, uh, and it's off to the tower you go. Um, he did get to meet his uncle, um, King James, uh, in which he pleaded for his life, apparently, and, and uh, offered to convert to Catholicism and, and do all sorts. And, and King James, possibly aware of how many other illegitimate children of Charles uh, there were out there, uh, isn't having any of it. Um, and so he's sent off to be to be executed on Tower Hill. Now, this execution um, took place. It was it was carried out by a man called Jack Ketch, who I believe was the resident hangman at Oxford Prison, uh, and a moderately adept hangman, but um, not the best swinger of an axe. Uh, it seems because a couple of years previous, he'd executed a man called Lord Russell uh, and made a balls of it to the point where I think he'd had to take out some kind of public statement, make some public statement apologising for having a couple of swings uh, with the axe and not taking the head off cleanly, um, which obviously wouldn't thrill James Scott, you know, the, the Duke, all that much. Um, I think it's reasonably common to pay your executioner uh, mm. to do a, to do a decent job back then that's the hope and and james scott certainly did that and then the execution take place and we still there's still arguments over how many swipes of the axe it actually took to kill him and it may not have even been an axe swipe that finally did him um but uh, one of the versions of it that i heard was the first swing uh, of the axe thwack cleaved into his shoulder um, second swing with the axe, thwack, cleaved into his other shoulder. Um, Duke's very much still alive, blood pumping out of him uh, from several angles. Uh, another swipe scalps him. Uh, there's another swipe which hits the neck, doesn't take the head off. And at this point, the crowd uh, around uh, the scaffold at Tower Hill is baying, shouting abuse at Jack, saying, you're, you're rubbish, get off, let someone else have a go. Jack offers the axe up to the crowd at this point, with the, the Duke still twitching on the block, uh, and, and says, anyone who thinks they can do better is welcome to try. Um, at this point, the sheriff, who's nearby, says, Jack, if you even think about handing that axe over to anyone else, your head's going on the block next. Get on with it. Um, and Jack actually, I think, gives up on the axe and, and uses a, a, a carving knife to, to carve the Duke's head off his shoulders. Um, and that's... that's, that's purportedly the worst carried out execution on on tower hill so that's quite good fun and then the story actually gets weirder because apparently they didn't have an official portrait of the duke done during his lifetime they kind of needed one and so what they did was um uh stitch his head back on uh to his shoulders then have this portrait uh done and that was good enough apparently what the fuck andy you're a comedian um would you give an axe to a heckler I'd give them the mic and let them have a go at that, but probably not an act. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. Uh, Emma, any question? I love this. Oh, this was the best one so far. It's hideous. So, was this just a man who was very, very, very bad at his job? Right. Was so he I'll... a hangman who didn't know how to cut people's heads off, or was he just like very poor hand-eye coordination? <laughs> so, I've got, I've got two theories here. Okay. First, one is that, basically. <laughs> total klutz and he's utterly inept my other theory is he actually knows what he's doing a, a bit more and and um you know king james aware of various other illegitimates out there and aware of his own breathtaking unpopularity um possibly says you know if, if he if he's going to pay you to do a good job i'll pay you triple to do a really really <laughs> yeah. nice to make job. it as horrible as possible yeah exactly <laughs> really deter people <laughs> 
you know what though if you if you are monmouth and you've come to a point in your life where you are groveling for for uh, leniency and for affection from james the second who is a total bellend you should probably just off yourself to be honest rather than <laughs> wait for someone else to do it for you uh holmes any questions yeah the bit about where he offered the axe to the crowd did he do that because he genuinely was panicking and didn't know what to do and thought someone else should ever get or was it like or was it a response to well if you think you could do any better was it like that well it depends which of my theories you, you <laughs> think holds most water you know if he is totally useless well go on then you have a go um yeah. or i'm gonna, gonna leave him twitching there for a little while and let's have a bit of theater while i do it i know oh, he's a good show yeah, I'm going to go with useless, but with a very thin skin for an executioner. <laughs> yeah. Part of me is sorry that there was a grown-up around to stop him from just handing the axe around and then seeing what happened, because then it might have hands down won this. Um, yeah, not a likeable character, either of those Jameses, actually. Uh, so I'm, just, I'm going to keep coming back to our chat thing is lighting up with, because people have really done their research this week and had fun with it, and everyone's got, like, side ones. Um, there's been some brilliant fire ones going up. James, just quickly tell your one about Archduchess Duchess Matilda. Oh, yeah, Archduchess Duchess Matilda. Um, she was basically 18. I think she was at an opera or something, and she liked to smoke. However, her father, the Archduke at the time, had basically forbidden her to smoke and everything. So she tried to hide the cigarette, and she ended up setting herself alight, this big <laughs> silk flowery gown that they all wore at the time, and she basically got second and third degree burns and ended up dying, just trying to hide a cigarette from her father. So if you think that one's funny, which I do, because I'm a sadist, but yeah. Kit, King Charles the Mad and the Burning Bull, what the fuck? Yeah, the Ball of the Burning Men. So it was, it was a masquerade ball, and he and his mates decided to turn up as wild men. This is so France again, right? This, this is France again, and they, they coat themselves in pitch and tar and go and do a little dance and chain themselves together for some reason. And the king's brother brings in a torch, and they accidentally set light to the men. Um, I think the king survives by hiding underneath someone's skirt. Another one manages to jump into a barrel, but everyone else burns alive. <laughs> Something tells me that France is going to have a much higher percentage of these um, than any other country. Emma, are there any ancient ones? If you were actually taking part tonight, there must be a shitload of them. I feel like there are. The one that I would probably have done might have been the three people who died um, in one leg amputation surgery, which was Dr. Lister when they used to do public surgery. Mm. Um, and he was um, a very famous surgeon and generally quite good at it. Um, but he was also a massive showman and he liked to show off by doing really fast surgeries. Um, he did this one leg amputation and he comes in and like swipes the leg off really fast. But while showing off, cuts off the fingers of one of his um, one of his assistants who's holding the leg. So cuts off three of their fingers and then drops the um, scalpel and cuts somebody else's uh, like a spectator's coat. The spectator dies of fright because they see a scalpel coming straight at their face. Um, like just drop dead on the spot. The person who lost their fingers died and the person who um, had their leg amputated also died. Um, so as far as the surgery went, fairly unsuccessful. <laughs> <laughs> I think he's, uh, he's he not nominated for the Greatest Britain at the moment on our it poll. Might be. I think um, he may have just completely shattered over <laughs> his chances. <laughs> 
he did lots of good things as well but he did also do shit like that quite frequently yeah i think if you were good those were the times when it would have been fun to be a surgeon wouldn't it just when nobody like, really knew what was going on and no one really cared if you caused absolute agony um and you just were like well should we just cut it off and see what happens <laughs> fuck it yeah let's do it bring me how an how quickly axe. can i cut off a leg i reckon i can do yeah. it less in a minute <laughs> when they were persecuting catholics as we've just gone back to doing now they <laughs> were arresting jesuit priests all over the country and one poor chap what they used to do was bring them in torture them for a while on the rack, get them to confess, get them to give up their mates. Then they would hang them, draw them and quarter them, which was again a popular entertainment at Tyburn, which is now Marble Arch. But one poor chap was arrested and popped on the rack. But unbeknownst to the torturer, he had a hernia. So he didn't make it off the rack. He just split down the middle instead. (laughs) But he didn't give up any of his mates. So that was good. (laughs) I suppose every cloud has a silver lining. Yeah, but think of the poor audience that showed up for the drawing and quartering part. Quality entertainment was hard to come by back then. Yeah, you'd be pissed, wouldn't you? Cool. Uh, Right, okay, let's go to... Zach, are you ready? Yeah, I can do mine. Go on, go for it. A bit like Andy, big Andy. Um, I'm (laughs) in uncharted territory here, because I'm going to take you to the USA in 1983. And as far as my history ends, if there's anything beyond sort of the Falklands and it's sort of that fuzzy area that in medieval maps they go, here they'd be dragons or whatever the hell. Um, I was tempted to do something from Waterloo because there's this great account by Jonathan Leach of a French officer who for no obvious reason just runs straight at um, Leach's unit and decides to take on this giant of an Irishman um, by lunging at him with a sword. There's a slight problem for him because he um, hasn't put his glasses on and so he misses, stabs this guy in the arm and if there's one thing that Napoleonic history teaches you, it's that you don't piss off an Irishman. Um, but I figured if I did too much Waterloo stuff this week, people would just start screaming because um, I've been doing nothing else. So I'm going to talk about something that's slightly dodgy. Um, definitely don't put this one into your internet search history because um, you'll get some bizarre results. You know and that Alina's about... going to do that straight away. <laughs> <laughs> She might have done it already. <laughs> I'm going to tell you about James Jimmy the Beard Ferrozo, who died aged 40. Now, he was an employee at the um, Northern Beach Topless Club, Condor Nightclub in San Francisco. So straight away, you can work out why you don't want to stick this into Google, um, which is exactly what I've done. Um, he was found dead on the 24th of November, 1983. And the reports at the time said that he was found dead on top of a piano. Now, that piano was made famous by the stripper, Carol Doda. Doda was um, the club's most famous and first topless performer. Um, She was on the sign outside, and you can imagine how the lights kind of had a field day with her cleavage and what they wanted to kind of emphasise. And the thing about this piano was that it was an elevator piano. It was supposed to be, well, the accounts vary. Some said it was hydraulic, others said it was suspended on cables. And the idea was that back about 20 years before, Dodo would come down uh, onto the stage on lying on this piano. Um, Now, this piano accidentally rose whilst he was, and I'm quoting here, entangled on top of it with his 23-year-old girlfriend, Teresa Hill who was a dancer at the nightclub, 
and they'd been together for about two weeks. It seems that the club was shut at the time. They think that this happened somewhere between 4 a.m. and 6 a.m. But he was found fully clothed, I have to add, fully clothed, um, suspended 15 feet off the ground, crushed between the ceiling and the, the piano. Uh, his girlfriend, Teresa, was um, alive. He was asphyxiated. He was crushed between the ceiling and the, well, her and the piano. Um, but she survived. Um, the account said because she was quite thinner. Um, so I'm not sure quite what that says about his build. But it seems that also at the last second, he managed to somehow kick the switch that um, brought the the piano up. And what seems to have happened is that somehow in, in the midst of what they were doing, he kicked the switch that made this piano rise up to the ceiling, but somehow didn't notice what was going on. Um, he must have been good. Well... First of all, he's referring to her as his girlfriend after two weeks. <laughs> Secondly, he doesn't notice the piano plunging upwards to his death. Yeah, it, it, it seems a bit odd. Um, I mean, clearly he was in a hurry. It seems to be... Uh, sorry about this. This is a crappy joke. But, I mean, it's one of those cases of what goes up doesn't come down um, in this case. Um, but why am I telling you this kind of sleazy little story? Well, apart from the bizarreness of it all, it also seems a little bit odd, not only in terms of well, why the hell wouldn't you notice, um, but the, the switch for this piano was on the wall. So nobody's quite sure how the switch got hit and then he managed to end up in kind of a sandwich between piano, his girlfriend and the ceiling. Um, there was also broken glass and blood found by the bar. Um, and Hill herself couldn't remember anything about the incident, apparently. She was supposedly intoxicated, um, but just remembered waking up being pinned on the piano, but she had cuts to her hands. So it's not entirely clear what the hell was going on. So, like so there you go. There's a night on top of that piano. Well, apparently it only took a... Go on. Apparently it didn't take that long to go from the floor to the ceiling. So I, I, I just can't work it out quite what the plan was here. And I know you, you'll just be sitting there with a pen and paper drawing a diagram and trying to figure out, like, no, like, in de all dead seriously. If, if one of us did it, it'd be because we were being smutty, but Zach would be doing it with purely intellectual um, motivations and just been utterly baffled. I'm tempted to say that this is the universe teaching you a lesson for being fucking pretentious enough to have a piano that goes up and down on hydraulics. Um, but Holmes, any questions? No, I was slightly distracted, actually. Just the, the first reference to the first topless performer, and I started to lose concentration a little bit. To be honest. But <laughs> That's is, exactly is the... how they managed to get Jimmy the Bean. <laughs> <laughs> but from what you said, the, the, the piano went up, crushed him on the ceiling, but he was fat enough, or fatter than his girlfriend of two weeks, which saved her, and then moved back down again. No, she was pinned underneath him for a couple of hours, it seems. Okay. Um, but... But yeah, they seem to think that because he was larger than than she was, he kind of provided a sort of cushion, if you like, um, and she was kind of stuck in this really unpleasant sort of. <laughs> and then Andrew my... D's face is just a picture here. <laughs> stuck in this sort of boyfriend piano sandwich. <laughs> just to be really horrendous. <laughs> how, long, how long do you think it took for her to go from a, a sense of utter grief and shock to go for, you know, she, she's there for some time, like a couple of hours. Do you think at some point she's thinking, 
oh, this is boring. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Typical bloke. <laughs> she was found screaming her head off. I mean, he must which... have weighed, weighed, weighed quite a bit if she didn't just roll off the piano. Well, yeah. I mean, you'd just kind of jump off, wouldn't you? I mean, um, it can't have been that much of a drop. Can it? 15 feet, apparently. I just still think the fundamental fucking flaw in this story is that some idiot thought, I know, let's have a piano, but make it move up and down. What a waste of time, energy and resources. Was well, there not a sort of uh, inquiry or something like that afterwards? Not that I can find evidence of. There are this just sound like a mob hit. <laughs> well, nobody's entirely clear. The thing I have an issue with is... He was found fully clothed, which doesn't make a huge amount of sense given the wider context of the club, if you see what I'm trying to say. It's worth saying that, not that this was a classy establishment to start with, but um, not that long beforehand, they had gone from just being a topless club to a bottomless club. But but maybe, maybe, maybe he'd finished and was just putting his shoes back on when the piano started to rise. But then how did she end up squashed on top of him? No, underneath him. Underneath him. So he was sitting yeah. on her whilst putting his shoes on. <laughs> I don't... It's ludicrous. Oh, I love it. Emma, any questions? My only question is, could we say in James's words that he could in fact get it up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I don't think there seems to have been a problem with that here. No problems with that. Good. Okay. But at least he wasn't trying to set fireworks off at the same time. <laughs> uh Lockie, you volunteered up another chicken anecdote. No, I didn't. I was making a smutty joke in the chat. Okay, excellent. <laughs> <laughs> I, like I thought there was an epic chicken story coming. I've got a chicken story. Go on, Kit. All right, so this is actually a lawyer story as well. So Francis Bacon was a scientist, and he was also the Attorney General uh, in Elizabethan and later James I uh, England. Stuart England, that's what I'm trying to say. I'm not that period historian. Anyway, uh, he was driving home one night in his carriage, and he suddenly had this idea of what happens if I shove snow up a chicken's ass. He wanted to find out. So he got out of his carriage. It's the kind of intellectual curiosity that drives (laughs) humanity forward. (laughs) Got out of his carriage in Highgate, grabbed this chicken um, and started shoving snow up its ass. And he did this for such a long time that he actually got pneumonia and died seven days later from his attempted chicken stuffing. What happened to the chicken? Well, apparently it's ghost, it's shivering ghost, still haunts North London to this day. Good, because I hope it was standing over him as he drew his last breath going, have that, you wanker. <laughs> I, I live now, now, we know the, now we know the reason for um, Spurs' logo there. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, li- I live quite near Highgate and I've never seen a chicken there nor any snow there. You haven't um, lived, I'm, Clive. Yeah, it's uh, I'm just, it, Pond Square apparently is where the, the ghost I'll, I'll, the I'll have a look next time it gets a bit chilly. <laughs> uh, Andy, was he Irish? Is he one of yours? Extremely. <laughs> I'm guessing. Let's go to you next. I'm guessing you've got some epicness of Irish nonsense for us. To- Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's, a, it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Well, I've been I've been attempting to do the country proud over the past couple of weeks, you know, staying away from the stereotypes of drinking and fighting, but this week it's all gone downhill. I'm about to set the country back about five years worth. Um, so this is the story of the Dublin Whiskey Fire of 1875. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> Lockheed's just, just in his uh, monitor and sat there and said, like, oh, I'm looking forward to this one. Okay, so uh, 1875 Dublin is not exactly a period I'm an expert in, um, but... This has to be up there for history's, maybe not epicest death, but possibly most dumb. So Dublin is famous for its whiskey. Um, even today, you've got Teeling's, Jameson, several others, and just six or so. Um, but one of the largest in 1875, and one of the largest storehouses was a place called Malone's on Chambers Street. I hear 5,000 barrels of spirits valued at about 6 million euro today were stored. Uh, one evening, a spark flew, turned into an ember, and turned, then turned into a blaze and the building caught fire. Uh, once the fire hit the f- spread to the spirits, the wooden casks began to explode and a river of burning whiskey began flowing through the streets of Dublin. Uh, this is the most catastrophic fire Dublin has ever experienced. Large sections of the city were very badly damaged by this. It's also not a particularly wealthy part of the city. Um, so animals begin to stampede, possibly on fire through the streets as well enter Dublin's fire brigade uh, command, under the command of a man called James Robert Ingram. He had had experience in New York, so he knew what he was doing, but he was known for having quite an unconventional approach to firefighting. For example, he once asked the Navy, instead of putting out the burning boat, to just sink it. Um, so his attitudes were skewed at the best of times. Ingram at least recognized that putting water on an alcohol fire was a bad idea. So instead, he ordered the army to pull up paving stones and pour sand and gravel on the burning whiskey. Uh, But there wasn't enough sand. So by way of backup substance, they turned to a far more common thing in the streets of Dublin at the time, which was horse manure. So... Shoveling. I just say, I wish I could photograph Lockie's face right now and put it out when this goes out. It's brilliant. Shoveling shit from the sides of the road, giant dams of manure were formed, finally stopping the river of fire from its path of destruction. They, they did divert it towards a convent, but thankfully the wind changed and the monks believed that God itself saved the convent. Uh, so, hooray. Um, this is a very Irish story. It's got everything. Alcohol, religion, death. Um, But yes, thanks to the ingenious efforts of the firemen, not one person was killed by the flames, but 13 people died, all from alcohol consumption. Because as the whiskey flowed through the streets, a number of men, seeing six million euro worth of quite valuable stock pass them by, decided to take off their shoes and drink. 
Uh, some of them then, some of them died from manure poisoning. Cause I was going to say, did they try eating the manure? Yeah. <laughs> As a palate cleanser. Um, others, yeah. others went for the sort of, um, I guess, flaming Sambuca approach and just incinerated their throats. And most of them died from excess alcohol consumption. Um, and they were found with their boots off having used them to drink. So in terms of the most catastrophic fire in Dublin City, and they all die from alcohol, it's probably, even if it's not the dumbest death, it's definitely the most Irish. Oh, this for me is right up there. Holmes, any questions? Yeah, I was slightly distracted at the start because I was trying to make notes and I couldn't remember whether I should be spelling whiskey with an E or not, which uh, <laughs> I know that matters to some people. But uh, anyway, I went for it with an E in the end. But uh, um, is this true, though? Did everybody actually just drink it? Because um, when we did the podcast with Pete Brown, we covered the um, famous London beer flood, which was in the 19th century. Um, when there was a porter factory just off Tottenham Court Road that had millions and millions of barrels of porter that, uh, in, in big cases that um, burst. And it did cause a flood and people drowned in it. And at the time, there, were, there are stories, if you Google it, about people who died of, who died of alcohol poisoning because they rushed the, the sort of um, drains and started helping themselves to all this porter. But when it was looked at, it was found that that wasn't true. And so there's elements of this that sort of seem similar here. Yeah. Uh, so I was skeptical as well. I actually first heard the story from a uh, friend of mine. He's a fellow comedian called Pork Williams. And uh, he told the story on stage. And I, I just the same. I doubted whether or not it was true or not. But the, the addition of the information that the, the people were missing their shoes and hats from having drunk the stuff and the hospital reports seem to indicate that, yeah, it is true. Yeah. But, but also, I, I'm not that much of a fan of those peaty whiskey. So I imagine going for a load of manure isn't going to make that much difference, is it? <laughs> <laughs> I can't possibly can't. <laughs> marginally ashamed the whole of Ireland. Emma, you're actually sitting in Northern Ireland right now. I am in Northern Ireland and I don't really have any questions about it because I believe it entirely. Um, <laughs> I live in Belfast and have an Irish husband. So um, honestly, I'm just quite proud of everybody involved. All <laughs> <laughs> <Go> the <on>, lads. <laughs> I love it. Um, did you have any uh, others, Andy? Because you would have looked at more Irish ones any that came close to being on the list I mean Brian Baru last week or whenever we talked about him could have been up there um, oh yeah yeah but um, the, it was quite depressing actually the only one I could find was an Irish woman who had sex with a dog in 2010 or 2013 but had a dog allergy <laughs> and died as a result um, again powerfully Irish <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, to be fair there was there was rumours about someone at my school who uh, went shows a similar path shall we say she wasn't Irish well, I won't name term, that. It takes the term "fuck this" to a whole other level. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, Just, uh, Andy, if I remember yeah. rightly, that was the one where the guy she basically met this guy on this bestiality site or something. The guy oh. who let her have it with the dog ended up on the sex offenders list or something like that. Or well, maybe that was the one with the horse because I remember there was another Irish one with a horse. Well, that's outrageous because clearly the dog should end up on the sex offenders. <laughs> <laughs> Also, James been searching on the dark web this week. Yeah, I know. James, James played that really cool, as in like I may have heard at one stage, and then suddenly reveals no, this massive knowledge. I, I will tell, I'll tell you where I found it. Oh. I'll tell you where I found it. It's on a list of unusual deaths on Wikipedia. They have a whole list for every century. Oh, James, I think you might die inside if we don't let you tell the story of the idiot woman, the first woman to be mauled to death by a tiger in Britain. Oh, Hannah Torwoni. Um, 
I probably pronounced her name wrong, but doesn't yeah, matter. She's basically, <laughs> yeah, I think just basically she worked as a barmaid in the pub called the White Lion, and a travelling circus came to town. And among the animals they had there was a tiger. Now she hadn't seen a tiger before. You don't get many tigers where she's from, of course. So what does she do? She starts mocking it, teasing it, gets a stick and keeps poking it and doing all sorts of things to the poor tiger. The tiger's keepers kept telling her, stop it, no, blah, blah, blah. But day after day, she kept doing it until one day the tiger got fed up of her. She got, well, it got completely fed up, leapt out the stables it was being kept in, which surprised everyone. It caught her dress and then it ended up mauling her to death. Firstly, even if I didn't really know what a tiger was, I wouldn't fuck with it. Secondly, I wouldn't keep it in a stable either. Um, oh I'm always slightly suspicious though when there's stories that, you know, and, and it's referred to that the circus came to town because it does give like a perfect way out to a bullshit story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, because it was, um, it was recorded, on, recorded on a headstone which still exists, and it was recorded on a plaque which no longer exists, but was recorded in a museum, and it basically said what happened. But that could feasibly just be the equivalent of a meme and uh, a joke. Her boyfriend at the time time could never face Frosties again. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Uh, I think what makes it real, though, is as well, is she had this inscription on her headstone, and at that time, inscriptions on headstones, they're really expensive. So someone took up the money to obviously have it on her headstone for her. So it's like, how dumb can you be? <laughs> I'd have a whip round for that. I'd be going, man, she's so dumb, she needs to have that fucking... Everyone needs to know how dumb she was for years to come. Um, yeah. Lockie, have you got this Mount Fuji story? Yeah, um, so this is this is one that sort of bounced around um, a couple of months ago. Um, I've climbed Mount Fuji before, actually, and it's all right. It's a bit of a pudding. You can go kind of go up and down in a day, providing the weather's all right. And I did it in August. Um, a chap tried to live stream a climb in late October, not dressed properly. Um, and as steadily as he sort of climbs up and um, conditions worsen uh, and things are getting number and number for him. And I think the last message he's kind of um, filming himself, uh, it's something like my hands are going numb, but I need to keep filming. Um, and then it's, Oh, I think I'm slipping. And then I think the last thing that people in his live stream will see is a sort of swirling as he disappears <laughs> off down, uh, down off um, some ledge or something. And he's found about uh, a thousand feet away from where he'd fallen. But he fell to his death. Uh, is it worth dying for? Uh, we're doing the uh, elephant sanctuary and you actually have to tell idiot tourists not to do selfies with the elephants because they have they, their brains don't comprehend. Do not turn your back on the four-ton animal behind you that can't see its own feet. It's just mind-boggling. Um, sometimes it's tempting to just let them, but then you wouldn't be allowed to stay and carry on looking after the elephants, so maybe not. Um, anyway. Alina, are you ready? I'm here and I am not really ready, but I'm going to give it a go. Well, it's never stopped you before, so let's go for it. 
Okay, so again, I was going to do Hitler, by the way, because we can all laugh at the death of Hitler, but I talked too much about World War Two. So, um, and we also we have chuckled at the thought of him being dangled upside down by one leg a few days later before, haven't we? In that, yeah, exactly. We've taken the piss out of Hitler a lot, so I kind of thought, let's give Hitler a rest and uh, let's do some googling. So I've bent onto Google. Uh, Emma's going to like this one. Uh, it's not quite Roman. Look at her smile, love it. <laughs> It's not. It's not quite Roman. It's. It's kind of to the. Wait, my. my I can't wait for you to try and pronounce the name personally, but go for it. You know. Do you know what I did? This is how smart. Given that we had four takes to get you past, what was it? Ineptitude. The word ineptitude earlier on. Or a multiple of other words that I keep messing up like constantly. I actually went on YouTube and found out how to say it properly. Okay. So I'm going to give it a go. <laughs> and I'm, I'm just watching Emma's face as I'm going to do this wrong. Right, okay. So it's Escalese. Did I say it right? Oh, yes. Results. Uh, she's laughing. Possibly not 100%. Clive is also politely smiling, but not really buying that with his classical posh education. Clive, how is it said? Escalese. Escalese. Close enough. Very close. Close enough. Yeah. Go on then. Anyway, this is a great one. I know. (laughs) Hopefully, Emma's going to vote for me now. Hint, hint. So he was an ancient Greek. Right. Who is got another word? Tragedian. I don't know. Let's go with that. Tragedian. He wrote tragedy. He wrote plays and shit. That'll do. (laughs) Yeah. Basically, he. Yeah. Exactly. So he wrote basically. plays that were just tragic so sad plays he was an athenian and they called him the father of tragedy 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 is around 4th 5th century bc so apparently (laughs) sorry clive just started doing the steps dance then to tragedy (laughs) (laughs) i love that he knows that anyway moving on so he wrote about 70 to 90 plays apparently but only seven have survived he fought in the Persian Wars against Darius I of Persia at Marathon, and then again against Xerxes. So he's kind of fought in lots of battles. He's a war veteran, you know, this hardcore guy writing plays as you do. Alas. They don't know the date. So 456 five, four, five, or 455 BC, he was uh, visiting the city of, I'm probably going to say this wrong again, Gela. I don't care. And an eagle dropped a tortoise on top of his head. What are the chances? He was a bald guy and apparently the eagle mistook his head as a rock and threw it on top of his head. And well, to try and break it open. So there's going to be yeah. some force behind that, right? Exactly. So Pliny actually writes that he was, uh, he was apparently staying outside after a prophecy that he would die from a falling object. But this is a bit of a legend. Nobody, you know, it's not never been proven. But alas, the poor guy, he's gone through wars, he's written plays, he's done all this shit, and then a tortoise has dropped on his head. Thank not you only that, but guy. fucking Alvaro Morata would have killed for that kind of accuracy just once <laughs> in his Chelsea career. <laughs> so there we go. That is oh. my, my epic death. You die well from a tortoise dropped on your head, which I actually find it kind of sad. Yeah. Funny, but sad. I also find it quite cool that a uh, slightly harried World War II historian with dyslexia decided to go for ancient Greece and just style it out all the way through that. Well done. Um, Emma, any questions? You know the story well. I do know the story well. I, I remember it would have been one, another one that I might have done because it's very good. Um, I Yay. love my questions. Um, I, just, I just enjoy it. Um, do I, you I think like he knew what had killed him? I think it's How probably very speedy. Like, 
Yeah. yeah. Like one minute you're walking out. along, the next minute. Oh, we mustn't not. forget to get bread and eggs and oh. Yeah. Yeah. I suspect bread he was and eggs. more poetic. Well, maybe he was going that. shopping. <laughs> well, uh, maybe he was. Yeah, exactly. He was. Uh, <laughs> Must remember to where to tell everyone that, uh, where I've stashed all those plays I've written. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the seventy other plays. <laughs> oh, any questions, Holmes? Oh, not, not a question. I mean, it sounds very coincidental, but I'm, I'm prepared to believe it. Um, many years ago, when my son was about seven, we went to London Zoo. I mean, I love you down at the zoo. And when we left, we brought a, one of those fruit pastels ice lollies on the way out. And we're walking back from London Zoo back down to Camden. And <laughs> so it's just Lockie's face is like, where is a fucking tortoise going to come into this? <laughs> <laughs> I hope this doesn't end with like a... I'm, I'm trying to work on the street next. <laughs> I'm, tr I'm trying to work out what the relevance of the fruit pastel lolly is as well. <laughs> as well, I'm kind of thinking, though, what is he going to pick up the lolly? Going to drop the lolly? Lick the we, lolly? What we're going to get to that. This lolly? Where's the lolly? Oh, sorry, in? Holmes. We hijacked your story. Go on. There's a anyway, fruit pastel so, lolly. We had the fruit pastel lolly, and my son. We, we undid it, and as we were walking back to Camden. My son was just about to put it in his mouth, and at the moment, the tip was touching his lips. A bird flew over and did a shit <laughs> on the tip of the fruit pastel lolly, but my son had already engaged and put it into his mouth at that point. Oh! <laughs> your son's now, what, 15, 16, and he's going to love you Dearly telling 16, that story. Yeah. But it does show, I mean, but it illustrates that you can get these freaky air-dropped air coincidences, and there's nothing anyone can do about them. That's true, and there's also, there's other animal deaths as well. Go on, James, you've fucking gone to town this week. What's this idiot with the tree? Oh, yeah, this famous wrestler or Greek strongman, something of Croton. I can't remember his first name. But he decided Basically, to wrestle a tree. No, no, he decided, he was walking through the woods and he saw this tree which had been partially split. So to test his strength or show his strength, he decided he was going to stick his arms in to pull the tree apart completely. He ends up getting his arms stuck in the tree and he ends up being mauled by wolves. <laughs> Yeah, um, Pythagoras is another hilarious one, if you quickly want to hear that one. Go on, do it. Uh, Pythagoras was, he created his own religion. One of the rules was that they couldn't eat bean plants or couldn't have anything to do with bean plants or something like that. One day, he's running away from assassins. He's easily outstripping them because he's quite fit and strong until he gets to a bean field. Now... Pythagoreans couldn't have anything to do with beans, couldn't touch them or anything. So, instead of running through the bean field, he just stops the assassins, catch up with him, and kill him with knives. Hmm. Sounds yeah. pretty reasonable belief to die for. What's his beef with beans? <laughs> we, we don't know. This is sort of a Greek legend. That's the problem with the Greek deaths that I researched. Is a lot of them are legend, and you can't be sure of them, but legend it's just so bullshit. many... Has yeah. <laughs> yeah. Emma, what's the evidence one? for Aeschylus? Either or the or the killer Beanfield. <laughs> um, they both come from Roman sources, annoyingly. So mm. yeah, um, I noticed Alina said she was quoting Pliny, wasn't she? So they're all a solid like five hundred years later. Um, I'm surprised you know who Pliny is. Which, well, to be honest, it's kind of the Romans' own fault for burning the fucking library at Alexandria, isn't it? Because all that stuff was probably in there, catalogued nicely with the Dewey Decimal System, and then along Julius Caesar came with fire, your favourite person in the world. Well, the Romans didn't trust anyone except the Romans, so they just wrote down the bits they liked. 
And, yeah. <laughs> and then I could sit here all day and tell you things that Pliny wrote about. Pliny's one of my favourite Ravens of all time. <laughs> he just basically just wrote shit down, didn't he? He did. He's got this amazing encyclopedia that's just like all the things that Pliny can think of, which is a lot of things. Um, he's great. He's got a good death, actually, because um, it's Pliny the Elder. He was um, down on the opposite bay to Pompeii when Vesuvius went off. Um, and being a, a, a man of... Uh, adventurous spirit and stupidity he uh, decided that he would strap a he strapped a pot to his head and then sailed into the explosion um, and naturally died in the destruction of Pompeii <laughs> with a pot on his head oh, sorry let me just I'm sorry <laughs> okay let's move on we've got a couple left to go oh clive is chomping at the bit look at his little face he's so excited <laughs> go on clive okay now to understand the death of thomas urquhart you've got to understand a little bit about his life and his work thomas urquhart was born in 1611 in cromarty cromarty is in the north of Scotland. It's even further north than Inverness. It's even further north than Dingwall. And Dingwall houses the most northerly football team in the country. So it's a long way north. Ross County, that is. So Thomas Urquhart was the son of a big landowner who was heavily indebted. And at the age of 11, he went off to university at the University of Aberdeen. Now, 11 might seem young to you to go to university, but in Scotland, they go to university younger than we do. Afterwards, it's free. He, he went, yep, yeah, must be. No school, no fees. They just send him up there at 11 and leave him. And afterwards, he seemed to have gone on an Erasmus year, which lasted quite a long time. So he was traveling around the continent until he was 25. Three years later, he participated in the Royalist Uprising, known as the Trot of the Turriff, which was the beginning of the War of the Three Kingdoms. So he was in there at the beginning, and Charles I was so impressed by his participation in that, that he knighted him, and he became Sir Thomas Urquhart, and he brought out his first book a couple of years later. It was a book of epigrams, and it was described by one critic as, without exception, pointless. So he then carried on. His father died the next year, large estate, lots of debt. So he buggered off to Europe again for a while and travelled around. And when he was out there, he wrote another book. This was a mathematical treatise about triangles. And mathematicians have read it over the years, and one concluded that it's not absolute nonsense, but it is written in the most unintelligible way. So he was on to a good one here, a real Renaissance man, a bit later than the rest of Europe because he came from Scotland, but he was writing about all sorts of things. He had participated in the Royalist Uprising in Inverness. He was declared a traitor by Parliament, but luckily for him, nothing seems to have happened as a result of that. He then joined up with Charles II after Charles I was executed and fought at the Battle of Worcester, which was an absolute total failure. And... He was quite lucky, well, lucky maybe in a way. There were 8,000 prisoners taken at the battle. Some of them were conscripted into the new model army and sent over to Ireland to fight. And the rest were banished either to Bermuda, New England, or the Caribbean. But he was instead imprisoned in the, um, in the Tower of London 
and later at Windsor. And he spent his time in, when he was in prison petitioning Cromwell for clemency. And Cromwell, for some reason, didn't execute him, which some might have thought would have been a good thing to do. Because what he wrote in his time when he was imprisoned was really quite extraordinary. One thing he published was um, a work of genealogy where he traced his ancestry right back to Adam and Eve. And would you believe it, his 109 times great-grandmother was Termuth, who found Moses in the rushes. His great 87 times grandmother was Nicolia, who lived in Ireland and by many was supposed to have been the Queen of Sheba. See an Irish connection with the Queen of Sheba moving there? All good stuff. Um, he was also descended from one of the daughters of King Arthur. So this was a pretty impressive work of genealogy. Not many people today, even with DNA and everything, can get that much done. He also then wrote a book, and I'll try and pronounce this, Logopandec Essecion, which was a book in which he invented a new universal language. And he particularly tried to sell this to Cromwell as a reason why he should be given clemency. And I think by this stage, Cromwell was getting well pissed off and released him. He popped up to Cromarty for a brief while and then went over to Europe where he carried on publishing. And actually that's when he brought out his one major work which has any merit whatsoever. And that was his translation of the French monk Rabelais. Now Rabelais, as in Rabelaisian, is kind of over the top, bawdy, rather exaggerated stuff. And the great thing about Urquhart's translation is it's even better than the original. Where Rabelais might have used um, seven words to describe animal noises, Urquhart used 70. So he likes to kind of blow things up. And I think it's only fair just to read to you a little passage from one of his translations of Rabelais's work. And this is Gargantua's discourse on bum wiping. <laughs> Lockie's face again. Do you know what we should do? We should just broadcast a video feed of Lockie's face for people to watch alongside this Down the Pub session. I have, said Gargantua, by a long and curious experience, found out a means to wipe my bum, the most lordly, the most excellent, the most convenient that was ever seen. And he carries on. I wiped my tail in the sheets, on the coverless, in the curtains, with a cushion, with an arras hanging, with green carpet, with a tablecloth, with a napkin, with a handkerchief, with a combing cloth, in all of which I've had more pleasure than do the mangy dogs you rub, dogs you rub them. I wiped myself with hay, with straw, with thatched rushes, with flax, with wool, with paper, but who fouls his tail with paper wipes shall his bollocks leave some chips. So that was rather nice. And then I just carries on. Say, you wouldn't <laughs> want to go around to his house for dinner, would you? Not really. Then he, well, not if you're an animal either, because he says, afterwards I wipe my tail with a hen, a cock, with a pullet, with a calf skin, with a hare, with a pigeon, with a cormorant, and an attorney's bag, with a monterreau, with a coif, with a falconer's lure. But to conclude, I say and maintain that of all tushels, arse wipes, bum fodders, tail napkins, bunghole cleaners, and white breeches, there is none in the world comparable to the neck of a goose that is well gowned, if you hold her betwixt your legs. And believe me therein, upon my honour, 
for you will thereby feel in your knuckle a most wondrous pleasure, both in regard to the softness of the said down and the temp temperate heat of the goose, which is easily communicated to the bum gut and the rest of the innards. So I'm pretty sure the from him. one, that's why he's the a great goose, lit literature. And Guys, so yeah. one, one, the goose is not going to be enjoying it. And I can't speak to the goose. What, what the fuck, man? I mean, Clive's quite posh. He <laughs> must have used the goose at some point during the lockdown, especially in the early days. I think this is why the French have B-days, you know. Is that <laughs> where the French went travelling in the continent? You'd, You'd have thought. So, there he is. He's written his translation. He's wiped his backside. He's sitting in the Netherlands. And he's in a position, and I'm, this is where it gets a little bit confusing. There's not much evidence about some aspects of this. So it's not clear whether he was just so pissed off with the Cromwellians or whether he was totally disaffected with Charles II. But when he hears about the Restoration, he bursts out laughing. And he laughs and he laughs and he dies laughing. So does the goose. <laughs> the goose was probably just relieved. His ass must have been raw after that lot. <laughs> Sorry, I'm transfixed on that. Andy's shaking his head. I think he thinks that we're judging the guy too harshly. But for a man, to die, a man like that to die laughing, it's a fitting end. But also, after all the doom and gloom and misery we've heard this evening, come on, let's have a bit of a chuckle and po pop our clogs that way. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's a good one. It's a good one. I like it. Emma, any questions? To be honest, I spent the first half of it thinking about how great it was to be an aristocratic man in the pre-modern period when you could just like ponce around Europe and write whatever the fuck you like. <laughs> <laughs> and just write, oh, I'm going to France now. I'm going to write this book about bums. And now I'm going and to then I'm going to wipe my ass on poems. anything I can get my hands on. Yeah. <laughs> and like, what a life. Amazing. Really jealous. Um, and then I thought that something was going to go horribly wrong with with one of the animals so i was kind of <laughs> waiting for a goose attack or something um so you didn't uh, use a tiger <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's true um so i don't know that i have any quick was he laughing with sheer delight that uh, it's um, not clear it's just laughing? that he was he was just laughing it's not whether he, what's not clear is whether he was delighted that the <laughs> parliamentarians had gone whether he was mocking them because they had failed to replace monarchy and we're bringing back a monarchy or he was laughing at the potential ineptitude of Charles II. It could I'm have been, or it could have been a combination of all of them. <laughs> I'm laughing at the collection of farm animals in the corner <laughs> covered in shit laughing their heads off as he dies laughing. <laughs> I have any questions? No, not really but I mean I think his problem was... His the normal first book, Saturday night out in Staffordshire isn't it? Pretty much we don't wipe our asses on anything in Staffordshire. <laughs> Beast, Thank you for sharing. <laughs> um, I think I think the problem here is that his first book was too tedious. I mean, a book on triangles. They've got three sides. Their angles add up to 180 degrees. There's nothing else you can say. And then, so to get his audience back, he seems to have written a more and more extreme book every time. Although, to be fair, his book, I mean, he himself had a lot of belief in his book on ma uh, mathematics. You know, he really switched switch tack and went <laughs> he was trying he worked out a most exquisite table for resolving triangles which boasted that a student could learn a year's worth of mathematical formulae in seven weeks by using his method but it's such a cryptic and strange book 
that his significance has been overlooked. And hilariously, Andy Dorman has just put in the chat um, something which would have uh, financially made him for life had he chosen to write it. Go on, what is it? Surely the missing title from his shit thesis is Fifty Shades of Brown. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's it's essentially just following the same career trajectory as Rihanna, isn't it? Just get more naked with every album. I have to say that when I was preparing for my webinar on insurance linked securities this afternoon i was rather distracted by reading various of his writings there are some others but they were too crude to read out in public in polite company as we have here (laughs) (laughs) there's no such thing on his react thanks clive thanks for that clive that was brilliant god i put too much gin in that last week i was angry (laughs) never pour gin when you're angry right okay we've got do you know what i've got a couple more anecdotal ones and then we've got i've saved kit till last because kit just do both of yours because they're both hilarious and i can't choose between them also i've been laughing my head off i'll play it for you afterwards but i've got a video of tommy robinson defending churchill and going on about him dying in battle uh, which is quite hilarious but that's not part of this podcast. You can Google that if you're interested. Okay, there was a lamplighter in 18... Yeah, yeah lucky, I'll share it with you in a minute. 1880s New York, Flatbush. And he was so worried about not waking up in time for work that he, he jerry-rigged an elaborate system to wake himself up in the morning, which utilised water, a small mallet, a neighbour's cat, <coughs> um, and a rock or something. Uh, the next... The next thing that happened though was that he had a party got drunk moved his bed and then put it back in the wrong place the next morning uh, his head was crushed by his own waking up device when it came down and mullered him to death which is quite hilarious uh, and the other one i love this one because like, you'd think this would have to be british but it's not it's a dane it's a very established dane he's an astronomer his name which i can't pronounce is tycho brahe or something Danish people are just going to cringe and cry when they hear that. He was extraordinary. Uh, he worked without a telescope, established the positions of many stars, worked out the true nature of comets. He also kept a tame elk and he lost his nose in a duel. So he had a prosthetic nose, which makes him quite interesting. However, his, da- his death is hilarious. He goes to a banquet where it was, uh, it was previously assumed that he was poisoned, but an analysis of his remains in 2010 suggested that actually what happened was that he sat at the table desperate for the toilet for the entire banquet and, was, and thought it would be impolite to get up and go to the toilet to the extent that his uh, bladder burst and he died. To be fair, we've had some some recordings like this, but this where I felt pretty similar, to be honest. <laughs> oh dear, yeah. But no deaths yet that we know of. Uh, not that I'm taking responsibility for. Um, I'm not making any promises. We've got to, we were talking about <laughs> off air a few minutes ago. I said, I'm, I'm pretty with whoever it was that said we needed to go and reenact one of these. Uh, right, okay, moving swiftly on. Uh, has anyone else got any anecdotal ones before we get to the... Uh, to the last one, to Kit. Oh. Any near misses? <laughs> Emma, any more classical ones? Any Roman ones? Obviously, we all love the idea of Julius Caesar being done in. I mean, that is great. But that's just pleasing. Yeah, um, <laughs> it's not epic in any other way. Didn't, didn't Crassus have a pretty good death? Uh, Crassus had his head cut off and um, when he was attempting to um, invade uh, Persia and then allegedly his head was... Um, given 
was kind of brought to the king of Persia at the time when they were doing a play which involved a severed head. So they threw his head into the um, into the theatre and he was used as a prop. Um, so the story goes. <laughs> oh dear, it's not so a it's, it's more of an afterlife. <laughs> brilliant um franz reichelt if you want a bit more french and austrian bashing go on we always love a bit of french and austrian um, bashing on this show yeah he's he seems to be an austrian in tailor or inventor and at the time he'd been experimenting a lot with parachutes and he'd done rather well with them and there was a competition to make a parachute suit for flying aircraft and stuff and he'd done some tests a bit inconclusive uh he finally got permission to throw a dummy from the Eiffel Tower wearing the suit to see if it worked. A dummy did go off the tower that day. So he goes on the day, he goes up there, and at last minute he tells all his friends and everything, no, he's so sure of his invention, he's going to do it himself. So he gets up, he throws himself off, straight down, splat. And the funny thing is, is that it was also caught on film and photos and it was put into cinemas, it was put into newspapers of this Austrian guy who got permission from the French to throw a dummy off the Eiffel Tower and did, but the dummy was himself. Oh my God. <laughs> I like, France is just an YouTube. endless font. Can you see it on YouTube? Yeah. Uh, I, I don't know. I actually haven't looked at it. <laughs> yeah, John says you can. We'll have to go there after this. But let's get to our last one. Let's get to Kit, because Kit's got a couple of brilliant science ones for us. Go on, Kit. Yeah, I thought I'd go full-on science on this. Um, so here's a little amuse-bouche. It's not my main one. But there was a guy called Thomas Midgley Jr., who you've probably never heard of. He was the greatest polluter in history. He was a fantastic chemist. He was born in a place called Beaver Falls in Pennsylvania. <laughs> Which is funny moved, in itself. And he moved to work for General Motors. And they had a problem of knocking in engines. That's uh, sort of miniature explosions going off in, in fuel. And he was asked to solve it. And his idea was to put lead into petrol. So he invents leaded petrol. Uh, he himself gets lead poisoning. Two people in his lab die getting this, this thing to market. Six of them are hospitalized. But eventually they do get leaded petrol out there and obviously it becomes the second largest contributor to global warming and climate change with greenhouse gases going. Mitchell Jr. wants to move out of that. He thinks, okay, this is a bit dangerous. You know, my lab are dropping dead. I need to look at something else. So he decides to move into refrigeration and he comes up with this brilliant idea and creates a substance called Freon, which is the world's first CFC. So that's number one cause of climate change. So number one and number two from the same guy. Basically destroys the planet. Pretty much destroys the planet. Uh, he comes up with a third invention. Uh, but to so be fair to him, Kit, at this point, he goes and does something, tries to do something noble, he, doesn't he? Does, he does, uh, he does. He gets polio. And in 1940, he gets polio and he thinks, I need to help polio patients. And the big problem I have is getting out of bed in the morning. So he invents this elaborate system of pulleys to help lift polio patients out of bed. And on the 8th of November, 1944, he tries it himself and properly strangles himself to death. <laughs> <laughs> this isn't Not even his best one. This one's just for shits and giggles. Tell us the one you've chosen. So I've decided to tell you the story of why you shouldn't fuck around with nuclear bombs. Um, <laughs> <laughs> this is the story of Lewis Slotin, the man who accidentally blew himself up with his own invention. Uh, in 1946, he is the only expert in the world at arming nuclear weapons. 
Uh, he was Canadian. He was born in Winnipeg. He's 35 years old. And he'd been recruited to the Manhattan Project, which was the big science project during the Second World War from the Allies to try and build atomic weapons. And soon he becomes one of the go-to guys. But Slotin's a bit of a reckless nutter. Uh, he ignores all safety rules and kind of does everything in cowboy boots and jeans. So whenever you pitch him doing something, remember, cowboy boots and jeans. Um, I'll give you an example of something he was, he, how he was like to work with. Uh, nuclear reactors were actually invented during the Second World War to turn uranium into plutonium. Uranium's pretty good for nuclear bombs. Plutonium is fantastic. Um, and at one time, one of the reactors develops a fault. Uh, most people wanted to power it down and change things safely. Slotten just dives into the water around it, swims down, and fixes the problem. Uh, so it was bold, it was gutsy, he got a massive radiation dose, but this kind of gives you the idea of the guy you're dealing with. And remember, cowboy boots and jeans. Now before I go further, I probably should explain a little bit about nuclear bombs and how they work, but not enough so any of you can make one. Because yeah. <laughs> um, so a uranium bomb is pretty simple. Uh, basically you fire a neutron, a neutrally charged particle, into a cluster of uranium-235, very specific type of uranium. It hits an atom, that atom explodes, that releases neutrons, which hits other atoms, they explode, they release neutrons. And that's what we call the chain reaction. One uranium atom uh, exploding releases enough energy to shake a grain of sand. A trillion exploding at the same time is enough to destroy a city. Uh, a uranium bomb was the kind that was used on Hiroshima. But as I said, a better bomb is plutonium. Um, and if you remember the equation E equals MC squared, um, E is energy released, C is the speed of light, so that's pretty much a constant, and M is mass. And plutonium is two elements along on the periodic table, so it's much heavier than uranium, you've got much more mass, and thus you've got much more bang for your buck. The problem is, as I said, uranium doesn't exist in large quantities on Earth. You have to uh, actually make it, it's a synthetic element. Um, by converting uranium into plutonium, well, first into neptunium and then into plutonium. Um, and so uh, it's hard to purify. And there's all kinds of stuff in it that will interfere with your bomb going off. So rather than just firing a neutron, you actually implode it. And that's why if you look at, um, at the bombs, they're called fat man bombs. They're these big bulky things. It's because the bomb has to implode in on itself first. That's why they look swollen. Uh, at the heart of the bomb is a sphere. Charge in the middle of the sphere, sphere, plutonium around it, and then a little nickel casing on the outside. It's sort of like a nasty kinder surprise. Uh, it comes in balls about the size of a softball, a croquet ball. It weighs about a stone. Um, and usually it comes in two halves. Combine the halves together, you get the bomb. And Slotin's job was to put the two halves together. So he is literally the guy assembling the nuclear bombs. Uh, he did the first one, Trinity, which went off on the 16th of July, 1945 in New Mexico. And he became known as the chief armorer of the United States, even though he was Canadian. He is literally the guy for this. And he gets incredibly big headed and cocky about it. Uh, part of testing if a bomb is ready is that you slowly lower the two halves together to see uh, if it starts to crackle and if we get what's called a critical mass. You put it in a neutron deflector so, um, so it's ready. And you can test if the plutonium, there's enough plutonium there to blow. Uh, and usually you do that with spaces uh, around so the two halves cannot touch each other. But not Slotin. He liked to do it by slowly lowering them together using the tip of a screwdriver. Um, he would invite his friends to watch him do it. Uh, and he, again, be cowboy boots and jeans. Uh, Enrico Fermi, a very famous physicist, a Nobel Prize winner, 
warned him that he'd be dead in a year if he kept doing that. Uh, Richard Feynman, another very famous physicist, called it tickling the tail of a sleeping dragon. So, May the 30th, 1946, Slotin is doing his party piece, and this particular sphere is known as the demon core. The reason is that earlier in the year, sorry, previous year, one of the researchers, Harry Daglin, had accidentally dropped a brick on this plutonium bomb, uh, and the radiation that sparked off had killed Daglin. Um, so it's got a bit of a reputation. But uh, Slotin's not worried about that. He's, uh, he's showing off with his mates. Uh, he gets seven of them into his lab, and he's doing his party trick. He's got the core in the middle of the neutron deflector. He begins slowly lowering it down with a screwdriver, and the screwdriver slips. The two halves combine, and it creates the world's first dirty bomb. Instantly, Slotin vanishes in a flash of blue light as the air ionizes around him. Uh, he gets an immediate radiation dose of 10 grays. Uh, we're not sure exactly how much he got because he told everyone to put their dosimeters into a lead-lined box so no one could prove what he was doing. Um, <laughs> we think it was 10 grays. Um, for comparison, firefighters at Chernobyl got four grays. So this is an instant death sentence, pretty much. He manages to shove the two sphere halves apart, which stops the bomb continuing to spew out radiation. But even so, he and everybody else in the room have got a massive radiation dose. Uh, three of them were hospitalized. Three of them went on to die from radiation-related cancers and things like that. It might have been more. The security guard down the corridor got a massive dose. He actually got killed in the Korean War uh, sort of four years later, so no one's entirely sure if he would have died of, of radiation poisoning. Um, Slotin, of course, dies much, much sooner. Uh, one doctor likened his condition to having three-dimensional sunburn, uh, severe diarrhea, he was unable to pee, his hands swelled up like balloons, his lips turned blue, uh, it was the worst ever radiation incident recorded at the time. Uh, he died after nine days of absolute agony. And so the man who built the first ever atomic weapon was killed by an atomic weapon. <laughs> it just sums up everybody's uh, evolving reaction during that story. What a knob. Uh, Emma, any yeah. questions? Uh, is this not Dr. Manhattan's origin story in Watchmen, um, but without the radio? <laughs> it, it is pretty much. I don't think he was wearing the cowboy boots and jeans. No, Watchmen. he's very lacking in cowboy boots, which I find very disappointing in Watchmen. Um, but, I mean, it's just breathtaking irresponsibility more than like I feel like if anyone should know not to be fucking about with plutonium it's the person who with the screwdriver yeah just like the universal I know uh, that and I'm a historian I've never I wouldn't recognize plutonium if you threw it at me (laughs) it's like the universal man I don't know what to do but I'm a man so I will figure this out nonsense is to attack something with a screwdriver why would you do it with a nuclear weapon well some men weren't that stupid were they I mean you've got Oppenheimer I am death destroyer of worlds and then we've got let's poke it with a screwdriver and hit it with a brick Uh, oh that is actually a myth it is a myth Kit put that online it's a lie do you want to know what he actually said So, so the, the, the first ever words were actually by a guy called Kenneth Bainbridge, um, who was with Oppenheimer. Bainbridge was made to lie on a, on a rubber mat outside the bunker because his job was that if the bomb didn't go off, he had to run up to the tower and poke it to see what was wrong. Worst job in history. Um, and Bainbridge's first words to Oppenheimer were, now we are all sons of bitches. Those were the first words after the bomb. Which I kind of like more than the Destroyer of Worlds ones. I don't know about yeah. you, Lockie. But yeah, I only know that because Kit posted that um, 
a few hours. Yeah, it's, it's one of the most common misconceptions about the Manhattan Project. Oppenheimer later, later wrote that he thought that phrase, but he never said it. And he's saying maybe it wasn't a brick, maybe it was a tortoise, and we'll never know. <laughs> but also, also that Oppenheimer is a far more sort of ap- ap- apocalyptic name than Kenneth Bainbridge, who sounds like someone from an Alan Bennett play. <laughs> Kenneth Bainbridge, he's, fanta- he's fantastically deadpan, though. He writes about sort of um, about the moments before the bomb and just sort of hating it. Also, he, the, the US accidentally kept bombing him. So at the top of, uh, where, where the Trinity bomb went off was actually the top of a bombing range in, um, I've been there, it's, it's right in the middle of the desert in New Mexico. And because it was the only facility people saw, um, the B-17 test pilots thought that that was the bomb target. And so they repeatedly bombed Kenneth Bainbridge. Um, and he actually asked Oppenheimer if he could have permission to return fire and start shooting down planes. Because he was just fucked off. With being bombed. Yeah, which is fair enough, really. <laughs> it's just kind of understandable. Uh, John's just looking like, yep, that's my country. Yeah. <laughs> Hell, like, the there's not even any German. police where I live. After the bomb test, he got a, a bottle of whiskey from uh, a guy called Ernest Lawrence, another Nobel Prize winner, and then drove off, the, drove off to the barracks. He said, swerving off the road only once, uh, and then basically just went to bed clus- clutching a bottle of whiskey. He was just done with it all. So that's Bainbridge. Anyway. Wow. Complete, uh, complete to the side there. I love it. Who would have thought science could be fun and full of just as many morons as normal history? I like it. Right, okay. Whilst our judges confer and decide who has won this week, uh, so many candidates this week, um, I, can't, I can't remember who did what now, but we're going to go around the room and get everybody to uh, say who would win if they couldn't have their own one. Uh, Jamie had to run an adult, which is sad. Uh, Kit, who would you vote for if you can't have one of your two lunatics? I really like the balloon lady, uh, just hurtling like a fireball through Paris. That's fantastic. And then deciding to light fireworks while she was hurtling like a fireball through Paris. Yeah, while you're in a hydrogen balloon. What better way to do it? Brilliant. Zach? I'm tempted by Kit's cowboy boot-clad screwdriver-wielding lunatic, but I think I'm going to have to go with James and... The, the nutter who thought that letting off fireworks by hydrogen was somehow going to end well. <laughs> Clive, you? Uh, I'm, with the, I'm with the balloon lady as well, because I think just, that was just such a wonderfully endearing story, and she so deserved her end. Um, I did like that one, but I have to go with the whiskey fire just because I've clicked on the link that Andy sent round and seen the images, the cartoon images of Irishmen lying on the floor drinking the whiskey that's on fire as it comes towards them. Uh, Andy, if you can't have that, what would you have? Oh, God. Sorry, Ireland. Um, (laughs) I mean, the ice cream sandwich of a stripper, um, his girlfriend and a piano has got to be up there. (laughs) Uh, that's, That's incredible. I mean, atom bombs aside, that's got to be it. Yeah, Lockie? Bum wiping. The bum wiping. <laughs> I really did like yours as well, Lockie. I like because mum of such an unlikable character. There's something about, well, if he's going to get his head cut off, it kind of amuses me that it was an ordeal. But you're going for the bum wiping. John? I was going to go for Clive's bum wiper because uh, I, I, I was going to place my chips on that one. But then I realized... He didn't tell us whether the goose had consented. So uh, without affirmative consent, I'm going to have to go with Andy's uh, uh, whiskey uh, devotees who are willing to drink shit-infused uh, liquor from a, from a shoe. Yeah. Dedication. 
<laughs> there is some level of dedication there. And James? Uh, it's tough this time, but I'm actually going to have to go with Zach's because it was one I'd considered as well. And it's just the, it's how he managed to do it as well. <laughs> but <Yeah. laughs> Andy's was a close second with the Irish guys. You forgot me. Oh, Alina, you still there? <laughs> I'm still here. I'm not on Twitter, by the way. I am not on Twitter. Mate, I can see I you all on Twitter, but it, that's because <laughs> I'm on Twitter as well. So who would you go for, Alina? I was going to go for the parachute lady, but I'm going to go with Zach's because I'm still stumped how the friggin' hell that happened. Yeah. It is just fucking weird, isn't it? Okay, judges, what say you? I, I think it's, um, it's Emma's first time being a judge. She should announce this. Go on, Emma. We've had... A unanimous decision. No one, yeah. once we'd heard this, I uh, think anyone came close. And we have, having applied all our highest moral principles, come to the decision that uh, the balloon lady is the clear winner. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she, there is a whole other level of stupidity. Had she not lit the fireworks, she may have just been one of the pack. But if the fact that she actually the... evaluated that situation yeah. with her collapsing balloon full of hydrogen that was on fire in a built-up area and her impending death and thought, fuck it, I'm going to light these rockets while I'm at it, <laughs> is what's done it, isn't it? It is. It is. Oh, James, is that your first victory? No, second after Vlad the Impaler. Oh, so you are, you're the only person to win twice now, but you have made more appearances than anyone else. Guys, True. thank you so much. I have no idea what we're going to talk about next week, but then the week after that, um, we will be doing our special um, on the Greatest Britain because we have a poll going around. The results are hilarious. It's just going to reignite every bit of shitstorm that was on Twitter last week. But it's interesting to see the results. And actually, we, none of this had started when we launched this poll. Um, and it's interesting to see if it's changed people's opinions. So join us for that as well. Join us tomorrow when we will be talking to Esther Chosen Men again. So the Sharp Guys have come back. And this time, uh, we've talked to lots of actors, but that's kind of mean because probably about 15, 20% of any crew that makes anything like Sharp is in front of camera. So we've actually had on with us uh, people who are responsible for building the sets, recreating uh, Napoleonic history on screen. Um, and all this, so there's loads more hilarious stories about nonsense in filming and being arrested in the Ukraine and dragged around the back of the Yalta Bazaar. But there's also a lot of really interesting stuff about how you even get to the point where you're filming actors on screen. It's really interesting. Zach sat in on that one as well. Uh, God love him. He sat in on so many. This is four sharp ones now. And he sat in on them and basically not got a word in edgeways but we hope he likes hanging out with them anyway uh, and then on Sunday we will be talking to Aperba Chatterjee uh, we talked to her today uh, so she researches India and Empire she's from Calcutta but she's educated in England she now works in Germany she's basically a globetrotter talking to her about what she researches and that's India um, between the 18th and 19th centuries and the cultural impressions of India so how they were created when you didn't have a camera or a film crew and also it's really interesting because I just assumed that the big imprint of Indian culture on us happened in the 60s when everybody started coming over but that's actually not the case at all and she talks to us about all kind of things that permeated British society further back don't forget you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com it will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus when you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers and if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. 
It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM. And we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. There now follows a public service announcement. I'm Horatia Hornblower. And I'm Archie Kennedy. The simplest gift you can give in these troubled times is to obey orders. Indeed. The regulations are very clear in the matter. It is the duty of all of us to remain at anchor until the little people in the talking box signal you otherwise. You don't want to end up getting flogged. Good day to you. Good day to you both.